Beyond Zero is Toyota's vision of a carbon-neutral future and more. Toyota gives you the power to reduce carbon emissions and help move toward its vision with a wide selection of electrified vehicles. Whether you're into hybrid EVs for that traditional Toyota feel with better MPG, battery EVs for a smooth and silent ride, or plug-in hybrid EVs that switch between battery and fuel, Toyota has you covered. And for those who prefer hydrogen, Toyota's fuel cell EVs emit nothing but water vapor from the tailpipe. So cool. Giving you the choice on how to reduce carbon emissions and move closer to Toyota's Beyond Zero Vision. Visit toyota.com slash electrified vehicles slash beyond dash zero dash vision. Toyota, let's go places. Digital trends show up every day in business decisions and actions. West Monroe is the number one strategic partner translating technology into financial value for companies. The This Is Digital podcast applies West Monroe's two decades of secrets and best practices to your business's benefit. Favorite past topics from the last three seasons include how AI and the next generation of employees are shaping the workplace, becoming a product company, Highmark's journey, and what does it mean to put the customer first? Learn more at westmonroe.com. My days working and taking care of my little ones can be a lot. I checked out care.com and it was so easy for me to find local, experienced, and background check sitters. Finding our babysitter was way more affordable than I thought. Care.com makes it super easy. Search for qualified candidates. You can view their profiles, read reviews and ratings, check their availability, send messages directly, get the help that you need. Care.com should be every person's go-to. The Quest for the North Pole is a production of iHeartRadio and Mental Floss. As you pass through the main entrance of the American Museum of Natural History in New York City, you meet a statue of Theodore Roosevelt and enter a hall crowded with tourists and dinosaur skeletons. You walk past a herd of taxidermied elephants, Native American artifacts, and the new gallery of gems and minerals before reaching a small room dominated by a giant meteorite. It weighs about 34 tons, but it's just a fragment of the colossal rock that crashed into Northwest Greenland as much as 10,000 years ago. Scientists estimate it's about 4.5 billion years old, roughly the same age as the sun. It's about 90% iron, and so heavy that the apparatus supporting it had to be drilled right into the Manhattan bedrock. Two other pieces of the meteorite are in the same room. Before white explorers arrived in Greenland, bringing with them metal tools, these meteorites were the only sources of metal for the Inuit people. How did these massive, heavy meteorites make their way from the Arctic to a museum in New York City? From Mental Floss and iHeartRadio, you're listening to The Quest for the North Pole. I'm your host, Kat Long, science editor at Mental Floss. And this bonus episode is Minnick and the Meteorites. John Ross was the first white explorer to learn about the meteorites. On his 1818 expedition to the Northwest Passage, he met Inuit who described black mountains some distance away 
where they chipped off pieces of iron for their knives. Though he was intrigued by this information, Ross didn't have time to see them himself. And they would remain an Arctic mystery until Robert Peary searched for them in the 1890s. By then, Peary had already completed two expeditions to northern Greenland with the idea of traversing its ice sheet. On his third trip in 1893, his goal shifted to conquering the North Pole. The expedition was memorable for a few reasons. His pregnant wife, Josephine, held down the operations at their base camp and gave birth to their daughter, Marie Anagito, there. Peary and Matthew Henson made a death-defying dash over the Greenland ice sheet, looking for a route to the North Pole. And Peary would be shown the valuable meteorites that the Inuit had described to John Ross 75 years earlier. After months of preparation, Peary and a small crew launched their reconnaissance of the northern ice sheet in March 1894. But a little over a month after setting off, Peary had to admit failure. The weather was just too terrible, and it took weeks for everyone to recover. In May, Peary asked the Inuit assisting his expedition to lead him to the Black Mountains. With his guide, Talakutia, they drove dog sleds over the treacherous spring ice to the edge of Melville Bay. Talakotia spied a pile of stones poking through the snow that he said were used to chip pieces from the mountains. As Peary wrote in his book Northward Over the Great Ice, he then indicated a spot four or five feet distant as the location of the long-sought object. Talakotia began sawing away blocks of snow, and three feet beneath the surface, the brown mass, rudely awakened from its winter's sleep, found, for the first time in its cycles of existence, the eyes of a white man gazing upon it, Peary wrote. Talakotia said that the boulder was thought of as a female figure in a sitting position. They called it the woman. Peary estimated it at roughly four feet long, three feet wide, and two feet deep at its maximum points and weighing about 6,000 pounds. Peary continued, I scratched a rough pea on the surface of the metal as an indisputable proof of my having found the meteorite, in case I should not be able, later on, to reach it with my ship. Because that was his plan. It wasn't enough for Peary to find the legendary meteorites. He wanted to excavate them and take them home as personal trophies. I asked Ken Harper, author of the book Minnick, the New York Eskimo, how the Inuit might have felt about that. The meteorites had been the only source of iron for the Inuit for a very long time. But it's also true that by the time Peary took them, uh, the Inuit were no longer you know, chipping off iron to use uh, as, as tools. Uh, from from the meteorites, they would get metal objects uh, and uh, knives and uh, other metal trade goods from the whalers and then from Peary. You know, people were dependent on Peary. So if this is his mission in certain years is to get these meteorites and get them aboard ship and use Inuit labor to help to do that and pay in uh, trade goods and, uh, and foodstuffs for that Inuit labor, then the Inuit are going to help him. But that still doesn't mean he should have taken it. 
they weren't his. Right. He wasn't given permission. It was not within Peary's character to ask Inuit if he could do something. He was there to do things, and in his view, they were there to do his bidding. So he didn't ask for permission. He gave himself permission. The following spring, Peary returned with his ship and crew to abscond with the woman and another, smaller meteorite that the Inuit called the dog, an oval mass a little over two feet long and weighing about 900 pounds. The dog was rolled onto a sledge made of spruce poles and dragged towards the beach. The crew floated it towards the ship on a cake of ice. The woman had to be transported on iron rollers over a roadway paved with beach pebbles, then ferried to the ship on ice. But before the woman could be fully secured, the ice beneath it broke, and the meteorite began to sink, pulling the ship down with it. By slowly hoisting the massive rock up on chains, the men were able to swing it over the side of the ship and into the hold. There was still one more prize, the biggest meteorite of all, which the Inuit dubbed the tent, a boulder so big and heavy that Peary would need a stronger ship and all of his experience as a civil engineer to extract it. He settled for transporting the two smaller ones to New York in the summer of 1895. He returned for the Iron Monster the following year. Peary's crew and every able-bodied man from the nearby village began digging the meteorite out of the frozen ground with picks and hydraulic lifts while Peary supervised. As it rose slowly, inch by inch, it grew upon us as Niagara grows upon the observer. And there was not one of us unimpressed by the enormousness of this lump of metal, Terry wrote. The struggle to move the huge meteorite proved to be a lesson in physics. Never have I had the terrific majesty of the force of gravity and the meaning of the terms momentum and inertia so powerfully brought home to me, he recalled. After pausing work during the winter, the crew built a sturdy bridge from the shoreline to the ship. They mounted a railroad-like track and then secured a rolling car to it. The meteorite was lifted by jacks into the car and covered with the American flag, while Peary's four-year-old daughter dashed a little bottle of wine over it and named it Anagito, Peary wrote. Then the meteorite was slowly pulled over the bridge and lowered into the hold for its voyage to New York. In his book, Peary includes several letters from eminent geologists asserting the scientific value of the meteorites, as well as reports on their chemical composition and physical appearance. But for all the attention Peary paid to his precious rocks, he neglected to mention that he also brought to New York some of his Inuit helpers and their families including an eight-year-old boy named Minnick. Let's take a break here. We'll be right back.
Did you catch Season 3 of This is Digital? Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including digital lessons from the EV revolution and the chief digital officer's role in disruption and culture, featuring guests like Ekta Chopra of Elf Beauty and Tyson Jomini of J.D. Power. Do you have a digital mindset? Find out by checking out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. <sighs> Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Get in zone, AutoZone. Welcome to AutoZone. What are you working on today? My check engine light's on. Mm, that could hurt your gas mileage. The AutoZone free fix finder service can help find the fix for free. This whole report for free? That's right. Printed and on your phone for free. But what if the fix is too tough? We'll recommend a local shop. Fix finder only at AutoZone. AutoZone. Restrictions apply. Perry's ship, the Hope, arrived at the Brooklyn Navy Yard in late September 1897. 20,000 people, each paying a quarter, came to see the giant meteorite and the six Inuit, still wearing their fur clothing in the late summer heat. In addition to Minnick and his father, Hishuk, there were Nukpa, his wife, Atagana, their 12-year-old daughter, Avia, and a young man named Wikasakak. Piri had brought the Inuit to New York at the request of anthropologist Franz Boas, then the museum's assistant curator for ethnology. Boas pioneered the theory of cultural relativism, a framework that argues that the values of one culture should not be evaluated based on the values of another. That went against the prevailing belief that human cultures existed on a spectrum from primitive to advanced, and implicitly, that white Western cultures were the most advanced in the world. Here's Ken Harper. Franz Boas is viewed as the father of modern anthropology, a very much uh, remembered today as an anti-racism uh, activist and uh, did a lot of good work. But the Inuit and the other people uh, studied by most of these scientists were, were subjects. They were subjects for study. The New York Times reported that the Inuit would go to the Museum of Natural History, where they will arrange the exhibit of their implements that Peary had collected. They planned to return home on Peary's next expedition. The museum held an informal reception for the Inuit, who were by then living in the basement. Matthew Henson acted as interpreter. 
When the throngs of visitors were told the Inuit were not actually on exhibition, they had to content themselves with a glimpse through a grating above the basement, and many lay prone, peering through the spaces in the hopes of catching a glimpse, the Times wrote. Between giggling at their unfamiliar clothing and Minnick's, quote, unspellable and unpronounceable name, the Times reporter mentioned that some of the six were not well. The climate didn't agree with them, the paper said. Less than a month later, all six were rushed to Bellevue Hospital. Atagana was so weak with pneumonia that she had to be carried on a stretcher, while the others appeared to have the flu. Franz Boaz explained to a reporter from the New York Sun that the Inuit had no immunity to urban diseases. When they come into this climate, they are the prey of every germ that exists, he said. Minnick seemed to have a milder case, but the five adults and the young girl never fully recovered, despite moving out of the museum's basement and into the Bronx home belonging to the museum's building superintendent, William Wallace. In February 1898, Minnick's father, Hishuk, died at Bellevue. Three others died that spring. Only Wikasakak returned home on Peary's ship in July 1898. Now an orphan, Minnick continued to live with the Wallace family. He missed his father dearly, but his loss was alleviated somewhat by the funeral service Wallace had arranged. The uh, staff of the museum thought it was important to bury Kishuk and uh, have a funeral for the benefit of impressing young Minnick. So they held this ceremony on the grounds of the American Museum of Natural History where they conducted, I guess, the, the New York version of a traditional Inuit burial. As he grew up, Minnick learned English, rode his bicycle, and befriended the Wallace's son, Willie, who was about his own age. He excelled in high school and competed in an ice skating competition. Nine years went by before Minnick learned of the deep betrayal that would shatter his trust. Though William Wallace and the museum had held an elaborate ceremony for Hishuk back in 1898, Franz Boaz never actually intended to bury him. Instead, he had planned to add Hishuk's body to the museum's collection all along. At the funeral service, the museum staff had wrapped a log in cloth and placed a mask at its head to mimic Hishuk's body. The ceremony was held at dusk, and they kept Minnick well back from the casket. Wallace later told a newspaper reporter, the boy never suspected. So where was his father's body? The museum had retrieved it and brought it to Wallace's farm west of Albany, New York. He had a little building that straddled a stream that went through the property, and that was a defleshing plant. Museum specimens were sent there, and unfortunately, Minnick's father, Hishuk, was sent there, and his uh, body was defleshed in this little building. Basically, they ran water continually over the body to strip the flesh from the bones. And then the bones were sent back to the American Museum of Natural History. The three other Inuit's bones also ended up at the museum. Though newspaper reports had mentioned the museum's plans, 
Minnick remained unaware of what had happened until 1907, when he somehow learned his father was at the museum. He demanded that the museum return his father's remains so he could bury them properly in Greenland. But Wallace, who might have been able to help him convince museum officials, had been fired a few years earlier for taking bribes. As for Robert Peary, he had washed his hands of the Inuit the moment they arrived at the museum. He refused to take Minnick home. Then Minnick took his sad story to the media. The bad publicity convinced the Peary Arctic Club that something had to be done. Peary was, at just that time, on his quest to reach the North Pole. And the public relations nightmare that might greet him when he returned would cost them all. Herbert Bridgman, one of the founders of the Peary Arctic Club, arranged for Minnick to return to Greenland on Peary's regularly scheduled supply ship in 1909. His father's remains stayed at the museum. He arrived back with just the clothes on his back, and he was like a fish out of water. He had lost his hunting skills. He had lost his language. He spoke only English. Minnick was 18 or 19 years old, the age when his peers would already be starting families and providing for them by hunting. He relearned his native language, and for a while, he worked as a guide and interpreter for Peary's former assistant, Donald McMillan, on an expedition north of Ellesmere Island. But, unfortunately for Minnick, he was still neither fish nor fowl. When he had been in New York, he longed for the Arctic, the Arctic that he viewed as his home, but which he did not understand. When he was back in the Arctic, he longed for New York. Minnick never felt quite at home in Greenland following his return in 1909. Several years later, restless and without prospects, he decided to go back to the U.S. and look for employment. But by then, the world had changed. World War I was ripping Europe apart. Peary's triumph at the pole and his bitter feud with his rival Frederick Cook seemed like a story from the distant past. Polar adventurers turned towards Antarctica to claim their fame, a fact clearly illustrated by Sir Ernest Shackleton's heroic rescue of his entire crew from shipwreck in 1916. Minnick began working as a lumberjack at a logging camp in northern New Hampshire. There, he befriended another worker named Afton Hall. And when logging season ended in spring, Minnick stayed with Hall and his parents at their farm. As Ken Harper writes, Minnick seemed to have finally found a home where he felt loved and cared for, a community where he felt like he belonged. But it was not to last. Minnick died in 1918 in the influenza pandemic. But instead of being buried in an unmarked mass grave, the fate of many of the flu's victims, the Halls laid Minnick to rest in the local cemetery, where you can still visit his grave. While the three Cape York meteorites remain at the American Museum of Natural History, the bones of Minnick's father and his companions are no longer there. In 1993, as museums began to reckon with their unethical collection practices of the past, officials repatriated the remains of the four Inuit. They were finally buried in their home village, which is all Minnick had wanted. 
The Quest for the North Pole is hosted by me, Kat Long. This episode was researched and written by me with fact-checking by Austin Thompson. The executive producers are Aaron McCarthy and Tyler Klang. The supervising producer is Dylan Fagan. The show is edited by Dylan Fagan. For transcripts, a glossary, and to learn more about this episode, visit mentalfloss.com slash podcast. The Quest for the North Pole is a production of iHeartRadio and Mental Floss. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Do you have a digital mindset? Check out Season 3 of This is Digital. Season 3 of This is Digital goes behind the scenes to reveal how digital trends show up in everyday decisions and actions, including driving profitable growth in enterprise software and how the new sports fan experience can drive revenue. Featuring guests like Chris D'Agostino of Databricks and Scott Crable of Tama Bravo. Check out the latest and greatest on Season 3 of This is Digital and learn more at westmonroe.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Looking for a better solution to keep your firearms in high-performance condition? Visit RiptideArmory.com for the most advanced proprietary gun cleaning formula on the market. Right now, get up to $40 off any cleaning kit for a limited time on RiptideArmory.com and take advantage of this amazing deal today. Riptide's two-step cleaning kit offers state-of-the-art technology and guaranteed satisfaction. Riptide Armory is a veteran-founded business, and you can trust that all chemicals are American-made and quality-tested. Shop RiptideArmory.com.